Welcome to Season 3 of Stunning. I'm Taisha Osler. And I'm the Silver Dollar Man. Taisha, tell us about our guest today. Meet Shelly Reynolds, a dedicated real estate professional with a passion for helping clients navigate the complexities of the buying and selling process. As an agent with Keller Williams, Shelly is committed to going above and beyond to ensure her clients have a thorough understanding of each step that's involved. So, Shelly, to start, tell us about the 20% myth. A lot of first-time buyers and even seasoned buyers still have this idea that 20% is needed to get a loan, that they have to save so much money to be able to buy. And really, it's a 3% can be the minimum. And if you're getting VA or USDA loans, it can be as little as zero down because the government will step in to help offset that. And then with the, the idea of 20%, that just prohibits most people from buying. So if people know that, hey, I'm looking at a $400,000 home and if I can come in with 3%, 10,000, 12,000 is still a lot of money just for the down payment, but obviously there's ways to roll that into the loans, right? So there is ways to make even that 10, 15,000 work financially for people. I'd like to squash that myth. And I think a lot of other realtors and lenders also want to squash that myth just because it's prohibiting a lot of young and even older people that want to buy a home. And I say older, that could be someone in their 30s or 40s, where we think of the first time buyer in their 20s, you know. If so they're where, lucky. Did that, where did that 20% myth come from? Because I know it, it is true. It's there. But where does it come from? I think the thought that if you have the 20% down or the knowledge, then you don't have to pay mortgage insurance. So that's a really uh, important piece of mm-hmm. the loan is that under 20% or the 80-20 loan value ratio, you have to pay the mortgage insurance. And that gives the lenders peace of mind that the loan is going to be repaid because there's, a, there's an insurance on that loan. So... You know, once you get to that 80-20, it either drops off and the lender will keep an eye on it. And sometimes you can refinance that out if need be, if more cash comes into your pockets or something. I think it's people think 20% down that I don't have to pay mortgage insurance. Then it's just principal interest in the payment. So I think that's where that rolls in is where it started. Mortgage mortgage insurance is not that cheap. So it's a decent amount of money that takes off their payment, right? Three, four hundred bucks or whatever. Yeah, depending on Mm -hmm. the amount of the loan. It depends on what the amount of loan is. But like you said, if it's a matter of getting into the house versus having to pay a little bit of mortgage insurance. Yep. And I think just this is part of the bigger conversation too. It's at least with mortgage insurance, you get to a point where it drops off or you could call the lender and say, Hey, where am I at with my equity? It goes away. But if you're renting, your costs are only going to continue going up. So it's okay. You pay this certain amount for a couple of years and depending on the direction of the market, which in our market, it's going to continue to go up in small increments moving forward versus the last few years where it went up drastically. So I think it's just educating people on, yes, you have this short-term secondary loan, if you will, of this mortgage interest, but eventually it'll fall off versus rent that can increase $100 every year or more. And that rent's just going into somebody else's pocket where equity is going into yours. Exactly. (laughs) Yep, exactly. And the nice thing about mortgage insurance, I think it it might have gone away, but it used to be a tax deduction. I know for sure mortgage interest is a tax deduction. So another thing that they can use to help offset the increase of maybe the mortgage payment to rent payment is that there is a tax benefit to homeownership too. Yeah. And as far as I know, mortgage insurance, 
is still tax deductible, but I'm not a CPA. No, exactly. I know. I feel not like all those things sure are changing. Right. I ask my CPA every year, are there any new tax codes that I need to be aware of that are going to be beneficial or hurtful towards my filing this year? So... 2021, I had a kid, so that helped. <laughs> yeah, that's always a good help. That's a good one. Yeah. Helps. Uh, yeah. Helps yeah. It's on yeah. the tax that's side. That's sure. The tax yeah, side. On the tax well, side. <laughs> you're an independent contractor. Yeah, yeah. yeah so. absolutely. Yeah. At least pays for your diapers. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Shelly, let's talk about putting the cart before the horse. We discussed this a little bit prior, and... What we mean, mean by that is a lot of people will start looking at the different home shopping apps, whether it's utahrealestate.com, which we prefer as realtors here in Utah because it's the most up-to-date information because realtors are updating it. A lot of people will use Zillow and Trulia and Redfin and the list goes on to look for homes even when they're um, just perusing. So we always want to, if you're even considering home buying in the next year or two, speak with a lender. So the lender is the horse. It needs to guide the process. And so we want people to call a lender just to say, hey, my credit score sucks. So what can I do to build my credit in the next year? Based on my current debt to income, could I buy? Finding out where they are in the process really does start with a lender because I can't do any of that as a realtor. We want to have that pre-approval letter in hand before we start unlocking doors and getting people into housing. And even for the home shopping thing, it's sure we can all look at the multi-million dollar houses and dream a little, but it not it more advantageous for your time, even as you scroll through all the listings, to look at something that might actually be doable, something that you could actually purchase. The house is the cart. We really want to get ahead of, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves and we want to say, hey, I know that based on what I make, I could buy a $500,000 home. And that's really exciting for someone. And that could be based off the current income and some of the debt. But if they need to do some credit repair, then at least they know, okay, in a year from now, assuming that home prices don't go off the charts again, and if they continue holding steady and interest rates are at, this is what I could afford in a year or whatever the timeline is. So that's what I would say with the heart, horse in the cart is that don't get ahead of yourself and be like, hey, I want to go look at this house if you haven't even talked to a lender. Yeah. Starting to set expectations. How do you set expectations for your clients? I like to have a buyer consultation and I do that with sellers too since we're primarily focusing on buyers in this conversation. Sitting down, just having a candid conversation like we can do here just to get to know each other a little bit just so we figure out how people communicate, not just in face-to-face, but then later on, how would you prefer to be communicated to? Is it through email, text, phone calls? And so sitting down and having a conversation, it defines whether we're going to jibe or if maybe this isn't going to be a good relationship, just purely you get a sense of someone's personality and there's always things that are like, oh, I just, I want you to be happy working with me as much as I want to be happy working with you. Usually it takes longer down the line to determine it those relationships, but I want people to feel comfortable with me because they're trusting me with a huge a chapter in their life. And so I want them to be able to trust me throughout the whole process of not disclosing any of their personal information, speaking to their lender and staying in communication. And I think it's just a matter of developing a trust in the relationships because we want the buyers to feel comfortable telling you a lot because their home is going to be where they live. And if they're not telling you everything, then you might lose out 
on information that's pertinent in the home search. So setting out the expectation is first developing a relationship so that they can trust you as a realtor and then setting the timeline, whether it's, okay, first we talk to the lender, then we start looking for houses. Then if we find something that works, we write offers. It says right there in the Rep C, the real estate purchase contract, that time is of the essence. So we need to make sure that they're going to be held accountable for those deadlines just as much I as I will as the responsible party because I do hold those deadlines really sacred. And so I think just having boundaries as a realtor is really hard. Mm-hmm. And so I think allowing myself to set those boundaries and communicate those also helps manage those expectations of when I'm going to be available for phone calls, how quickly I'll respond. Because I think that's all really important because people get really anxious and there's a lot going on. But you don't want them freaking out because you're not picking your phone up at 10 p.m. No, so. I think setting those expectations is really important yeah. right up front. And how do you feel about, I'm trying to think back to some of my younger days when I was buying a house and I didn't really know lenders yeah. I, I'm not sure I really trusted a lender. I didn't know anybody. So right. how do you feel about when someone's starting to look for a house to, to go to a realtor f- to get referrals over to a lender that they've been dealing sure. with? Is that a good idea? I think, yeah, of course. It's like vetting like you would. You can do what you would do if you were having a big project done on your home. And if you're a young person, you think of what your parents did. If your parents set that example or had those experiences where if you do know a realtor, because a lot of people don't. I was at the Apple store the other day just getting a new computer and I was talking to the guy and I was like, oh, yeah, he's what do you do? And I was telling him and he's, oh, that's cool. He's, I don't know any realtors. I was like, what? <laughs> but I joke, I could throw a rock in my friend group and hit at least three. And it's not because I socialize with realtors. It's just, that's just coincidentally the lifestyle, I think is what kind of brought us all together. But so I think trusting people at work, trusting their parents, trusting their friends on who to first refer you to a realtor, because that's usually what people are going to do. They're going to refer you to a realtor before they refer you to a lender. And then as realtors, we have our team and we mm-hmm. call our lenders or our repairmen, our title, our most valuable people that ensure mm-hmm. home's going to come to us without any dirty history. I so <laughs> I think, yeah, you have to trust the people in your, your own personal circle to give you good referrals. So hopefully that starts with a realtor that is respected and trusted. And then your realtor is going to have people that they work with, that they develop a relationship with, that they trust. And yeah. so it is, it's huge on referral business. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's a good question that Scott posed because putting the cart before the horse is easy to do and you're a consumer. And some people don't even know that realtors and mortgage lenders and title people are all three separate things. Mm-hmm. You know, they think everyone just does all of it. Yeah, together. And then I think that also dovetails into the expectations is because there's certain things as realtors we can't do. We need to really stay in our wheelhouse, certain things. So I'm not going to know the nitty gritty about your finances. So the lender does. And it's better for you that I don't know all those things. There's certain things I have to know because I have to write the contract and I have to understand like the stressors that are coming in. But I don't have to know everything. I don't need to know where the money's coming from per se. I let the lender deal with that. So I think it's trusting people, sharing their responsibility, accepting responsibility, and dividing and conquering to a degree. So when you get a client that comes to you, and heaven knows the public doesn't know a lot about a lot of things when it comes to real (laughs) estate. So they're coming to you and they have, I don't know, certain expectations about what they want in a house. How do you manage that? Because sometimes they can be out of control. Right. 
And we just say we're at the mercy of inventory. You can look at a house from the outside and assume that it has the number of bedrooms or the number of bathrooms or in a certain condition because it's in a certain neighborhood. But I think it takes walking through a couple of houses. I'll tell people, I'm like, I don't want to take you through 50 houses because that's generally unnecessary. You're going to probably be able to figure, find the house you want in a smaller number of visits, want you to get a good idea of what houses can look like in a certain price point. And if they have this idea of their dream home is maybe you need to save for a couple more years to be able to afford your dream home, you know, because when certain budgets, they're just, it's unrealistic. And so, yes, that's another really big expectation to manage is just what are your must haves? If you have two kids and you want three bedrooms, so each kid has their own room or you need a home office, everybody's got their needs. And then we move on to the wants, but some sort of big thing, right? <laughs> a lot of clients will ask, should I add a bathroom or should I add solar? I'm like, I would add a bathroom as much as I <laughs> yeah. care about the clean air. I think yeah. more people are going to be happier with a second bathroom. So that's a little tangent, but... I think just letting them know we're at the mercy of what's on the market without knocking on doors to asking people to sell you their house because yeah. <laughs> you've seen it before. Yeah. I think it's just we can only do so much with the inventory and, and patience. So something might come on that fits your needs better. If you need something sooner, then we have to just work with the inventory we have. And inventory can mean, you know, certain locations or expanding your search. So it's just being a little bit flexible because the stats used to be what people used to move every seven years. And I'm not sure if they're still doing that. Yeah. And it's obvious you've got a lot of good experience to be able to give your buyers this kind of information and help them through this process. You recently just got your certified residential specialist. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So it's the CRS certified residential specialist designation is really cool. And it's something that I knew about even before I became a realtor. I used to work in social services and so it was a nonprofit and CRS used to host different events and they chose our organization that I worked for six years as their nonprofit to donate to. So I met tons of realtors and people associated with CRS before then. I was like, this is so cool because it's really encouraging growth through education and then also community and giving back to your community and not for any like potential client gain. I never felt that. Nobody was ever like, hey, do you have a realtor? Everyone was just like, we're so excited about the work you're doing. And so to see realtors really giving back and being involved and then doing a shallow dive into what CRS meant back then, I was like, oh, that's really cool. Realtors like continuing their education and reaching out to their local communities beyond the national scope of what they do so then when I became a realtor I had some good mentors that were like oh you really got to work on your CRS and I was like what's the big deal even though I had this small taste of what they did and it's prestigious because it shows that you care about what you do not only because it's like it's a designation and you get some more little initials behind your name but it's also saying hey I I care about being a realtor because I want to expand my knowledge base so it encourages that constant growth through learning about what's happening in real estate and ways that you can get involved in your community by being maybe that realtor so you do get that hey I'm the realtor in the room (laughs) but it's really saying I care about the professionalism of our industry Mm -hmm. where historically they're 
has been a kind of a bad reputation. If you ranked professions of who do you trust, like lawyers and realtors (laughs) were like not trustworthy or something. This is probably old news, but it was one of those things that we, the bar to entry isn't super high for real estate per se when it comes to education and training. But the maintenance, I think, is what really sets us apart is that as professionals in most industries, there is continuing education. And I think that's just really important to do. I learn something new on every transaction that I do. So whether it's a buyer or a seller, it's complex. And I wanted that designation to show that I care about what I do as a professional and as a community member. Mm -hmm. It became really tricky when we were having all the bidding wars and people were putting up more earnest money at different times Mm -hmm. in the contract Mm -hmm. or being willing to give up their earnest money if they canceled at any time. Like that's thousands of dollars. I never felt comfortable with that. And it got so bad in the last few years that in our brokerage at Keller Williams, we had a separate disclosure for our clients saying your realtor has educated you on the risks of adding or agreeing to relinquish some amount of earnest money or giving up your right to an inspection. Like we had them sign and read that again Mm -hmm. because we just wanted to really cover ourselves because these were really risky behaviors that buyers were willing to do to get a house. Yeah. In addition to the tens of thousands of dollars they were spending out of pocket to get there. So I think we have to be really careful. And I think that's what sets us professionals apart is being really mindful of the weight that contract carries, not only for the consumer, but for us as realtors. Yeah. And I have it in my, my folder that I take to appointments and it's got my my legal pads so I can take notes and all that. But in the other side, I have my code of ethics because I want people, it's not a reminder to do good by my clients. It's just like, I, this is my little Bible. This mm-hmm. is what I'm here for. I'm here for relationships and building that trust and maintain the integrity that I've instilled in my work. Yeah. Sure. So I think you're right. Like the continuing education that realtors do is it's intense and it's important for, so for you to go even beyond that and do the CRS is just, I think it's complementary to what a good realtor you are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. And you mentioned, by the way, you mentioned that you were, you worked for a charitable organization. You came into contact with these professional real estate. Is that how you got interested in real estate? It helped. I really loved the work that I did before, you know. I got into real estate because at the end of the day, the short answer is I really enjoy helping people and, but we all need to earn a paycheck and I needed something that satisfied my need to help, but also a learning curve. I felt like I was getting stale in the job that I was doing and I'd done hospitality. And then the job we're talking about now is a case manager working for a homeless shelter for families that I did for six years. And Love, love, love the work, love the people that I got to work with in the community because it was very community. It was interfaith hospitality network. So we worked mm-hmm. with community churches, people of faith in the community, which I'm not a part of, but I really enjoy that aspect of what we were doing. And of course, trying to get families off the streets and into permanent supportive housing. And the model was housing first. It doesn't get any more simple than that. I was always trying to keep people in housing. So this is definitely a different demographic of people that you're getting into uh-huh. housing. It really is a privilege to be able to purchase a home. Right. And so I think, yeah, real estate just became a perfect fit for me because I was able to help people. I was able to constantly learn and grow 
by not only these classes, but also meeting people from all walks of life, you know, different ethnic demographics and being able to just really get to know people and what their needs and wants are for creating memories with their partners or individuals or families really get get to really get to the heart of what people need. And so real estate, yeah, it's, and of course, who doesn't love being able to go through houses and be like, oh my gosh, they did this, or look how beautiful this is. What were they thinking? You're in the gamut when you walk into a house. And so I think the adventure side of that is a, a lot of me too, and it's all encompassing. And yeah, I think just the relationships that I'm able to build with my clients and then of course, folks like yourself that help support me in what I do. seems like you would move from one charity and into another charitable <laughs> type of job, which real estate really is because it changes the lives of people. And I bet you saw that in your charitable work for, gosh, what was what So the had? organization I worked for, a little plug for them, is Family Promise Salt Lake. Uh-huh. And so it's part of the Interfaith Hospitality Network of the country, the U.S. So we're, they're all over the gotcha. U.S. Yeah. So we just had the one. It seems like you could see there the importance of housing. Oh, absolutely. Exactly. And how that changes of family dynamics and what it does to generations. Yeah. It, absolutely. Yeah. Just knowing that I've been privileged to have a home my entire life. And even through death and changes, my mom was always able to keep a roof over our head and be able to purchase a home through probably different programs. I don't know. It's definitely something to be grateful for and mm. wanting to be able to make that a, a dream become reality for clients if you want to use cliches yeah. but I think right. it's real it's some people just sure. never had the safety net of constant housing and I think if you can give that to somebody or help them achieve it there's nothing greater than that mm, that's so powerful that's so true and I think when we were talking about the market that we've been in for a little mm-hmm. while where people are just doing whatever they can to get the house that they want <laughs> I think that kind of comes in because of the tight market, the shortages like that. Do you think that we're still there? Talk to us a little bit more about Utah's. Yeah. So most people, you know, that are in our industry know this because it's just been the buzz forever. You know, we've, we've been in a housing shortage since the recession back in 2008, where there just wasn't money to build and everything collapsed. And we've been in this recovery since. So the shortage has been going on for nearly two decades where they just weren't building enough for the influx of people coming to Utah, you know, the Tribune and, and the other news sources reported this fall that we added 61,000 people to the state in one year. That's a lot of people. And yes, they're mostly concentrated along the Wasatch Front, Ogden to Provo, so to speak. Only one county of our 29 counties didn't see growth. And that was Daggett, which is like up in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) Daggett. I know, right. And I just just refreshed on that just to be like, where is Daggett again? Our apologies Um, to all five residents. We we love you, Daggett. (laughs) We do love you. Hashtag Daggett forever. So yeah, so we had the shortage, not only because of we weren't building as much. And, you know, we are also along this corridor of mountains where we can only build so far, right? Mm -hmm. You think of Tins and the Great Salt Lake that is losing its fervor but mm-hmm. another topic another time yes yeah so we've had this influx of growth because we have a really stable economy here and we've had a lot of growth in our economy and so people are like oh strong economy really low unemployment i get to live close to the mountains where it le- legit it's not like the front range in colorado where it actually takes two hours to get to the resorts just by driving yeah. or if you're 
two hours getting to the mountains is because it's just traffic because everyone has moved here. <laughs> I think people move here because it's really safe. It was and is still affordable for most folks to still get into homes. And so, yes, we're still trying to play catch up. And then we're going to see an interesting turn because builders are going to fulfill the contracts that they have now. But because new buyers are on the fence because of interest rates, that there's probably going to be another pause in building. And then we'll have to see it when they pick that back up. So it's going to be this constant behind schedule for houses for the demand that's there. Yeah. I was listening to a really informative podcast this morning and it was talking about how I think the number of active listings in the U.S. is under a million. Wow. <laughs> I think was the number. That but is you think crazy. Nationwide, that just shows you what a dearth of supply we have. Yeah, And absolutely. that we need, we're just, we're well beyond behind schedule for homes. Even though we have, I think throughout Utah, yesterday's number was like 1,700 listings in the entire state. But Salt Lake County was only 500 something, I want to say. We're still pretty well behind the numbers that we need. And even though we're seeing more days on market, there's still not enough if all those houses were to be yeah. consumed like in three months. Or I think that was like three to four months. Right. Yeah, because uh, yeah, I'm interested. You said 61,000 within a year. Come okay. in one year. I wonder how many of those are in Salt Lake County. Yeah. And I, then you think about 500 homes. On the market in yeah. Salt Lake County yeah. for all those people. Yeah if, you, yeah, if you say, you know, 30 more than, it would probably be like 60% of those people probably moved to Salt Lake County. Yeah. So you figure that's a think. lot of people. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. In the last while that you've been working, is there any particular family that are, I guess, any family you were able to help get into a home that sticks out in your mind that you really enjoyed? Oh, I have so much fun with everybody. And that's the other thing I do really have fun too. We you try to take the stress out of the process. There was a, a woman in my earlier career. <laughs> she was living in absolute squalor and children were absent. There was never a partner to be seen. And we were able to get her into low-income housing, sell her house. That money went into a state trust account that only she could use for expenses. And then she had subsidies for her housing. So she always would have money in the bank to pay for living expenses beyond just her rent because that came from another funding source. But we got her living out of this abject poverty into safe housing mm. and then also having money that she could get a cell phone that she could pay for a housekeeper to come help her clean because she just didn't have the ability to do that. That one was really poignant to me probably because I was recently out of working with homeless services and I used to work with chronic homeless before the families. So that one was really um, important to me because I did a lot of legwork that was definitely beyond my scope as a realtor. I definitely got back in a case manager cap and <laughs> was like, okay, I got to call Medicaid. I got to call Social Security. I've got to call all these other entities to wow. make sure that she is of a sound mind to make these decisions to sell her home before we could do anything, let alone, it wasn't for me to make money. Like I, I didn't do that. It was purely to help someone from owning a home, which was great, but also put her into actual safe housing where she could actually maintain it and live in a healthy environment. And then I worked with this family for almost two years. They had a 18 month old when I met them. She's now four mm -hmm. and they've been in their house just over a, just a year now. Yeah. And 
They ebbed and flowed through like the craziest time at the market where it'd just be like, they just got so burned out that they'd renew their lease. And then four months into their lease, because they'd signed a six-month lease, they'd start looking again and be like, Shelly, can we go see this house? <laughs> Revisit the lender, make sure everything's the same. And, and then prices just were getting out of hand. And, you know, they were able to be more creative with their money but than most people. And so, yeah, after... I want to say it was a year and a half because, you know, their little one turned three in the process. We were able to get them into a home in the neighborhood they wanted, more house that they had planned to buy, but they could do it. And then I was just over there two weeks ago because they wanted to show me some of the things that they had done because it was owned by one family for since 1960 so they're slowly doing those updates but they like the retro vibe of it because they're Mm -hmm. artistic and just a really cool family Hmm. and so that one is also another fun one because it's seeing a family that's going to now grow in that house and create those memories and it was a long process yeah (laughs) but now they're my friends they call me birthday parties and he's an illustrator and did this beautiful illustration of my dog for me that he signed and it's one of one so I'll be able to frame that and it's just so like those experiences where I got a gift from them that I get to put in my home as a reminder of the wonderful work that I do and the other colleagues of mine do yeah, it's like we say here at Title One, you're always helping people secure a house yes. for their home, to put their, their home and their heart and their family in. Well, that's so. the language we use. Like a seller, you call it their property. For a buyer, it's their home mm-hmm. because you create detachment for the seller and attachment for the oh, buyer. I love that, yeah. Well, Shelly, thanks for sharing with us all your wisdom. And until next time, to all you listeners, stay stunning.